Again, free thinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist, and we also have the Free Thought Project contributor, Don Vi Jr., with us today. So, as you guys know, we try to bring big name guests on the show because they draw listeners and help us expand the reach of the show, but we also try to shine a spotlight on lesser known activists with smaller followings that are doing good work in their community, or innovating groundbreaking technology, or simply creating waves by challenging the status quo. Some of our guests are people that you've likely never heard of, but we also have guests on the show that really don't need an introduction. Larkin Rose is one of those people, as most of us in the anarchist voluntarist community are familiar with his work. He's one of the most well-known anarchists in the world and has been for years, And I'm going to be honest here, guys, I personally have learned a lot from Larkin over the years, as well as share a number of similar perspectives with him. So I think it's safe to say that there wouldn't be nearly as many voluntarists in the world if Larkin didn't exist, and that his work has made concepts like anarchy more palpable for a broader audience unfamiliar with libertarian principles and philosophy. So today's show was an absolute blast, and we discussed a few controversial topics along with a few new projects Larkin has recently been working on. The great Larkin Rose. Thank you for joining us today. I know you've been insanely busy over the past few months, but we finally got you on the podcast and we have several topics to talk about today that I know our listeners will be excited to hear about. But Larkin, it's not an exaggeration to say that you've been absolutely instrumental in creating a vast worldwide network of voluntarists with your work, exposing the illegitimate claims of false authority. So, you know, many of your videos have gone mega viral over the years, and rightfully so. They have a long shelf life, uh, a lasting impact in the truth community, and the substance within them challenges the status quo and oftentimes, you know, the, the reality that so many embrace. Videos like I'm Allowed to Rob You, The Tiny Dot, uh, How to Be a Crook have not only been personally valuable for me to understand my own philosophy, but They've resonated deeply within thousands, if not millions. And of course, those are just a few of your classics. You have an extensive catalog. So it's no secret that you're incredibly dedicated to this movement. You seem to never slow down. And recently, as of three days ago, you finished a three-part series called Making Anarchy Mainstream that we'd love to talk about. But when you made a promotional post on Facebook about it, you made this bold statement claiming that quote, most people who do understand the concept of self-ownership, non-aggression, and a stateless society 
do not understand enough about human psychology to be effectively spreading such ideas to the people around them. And that's why you made Making Anarchy Mainstream. So maybe can you explain what you meant by this statement? Sure. The the, the psychological side was something that I wasn't trying to learn about and didn't care about. Like I became an anarchist now 27 years ago. And so the philosophy and the concepts and all that was what interests me. And I quickly learned, as I'm sure plenty of your <laughs> listeners have learned the hard way, that understanding it and being able to describe it even like succinctly and perfectly logically doesn't work, quote unquote. <laughs> like most people have these really weird responses and they fly off on tangents or they just imagine things that you didn't say. And so along the way, over those 27 years, I actually got a fairly in-depth education in human psychology and trying to figure out what is it that makes it so you can't just explain it and have somebody understand it when it's not that complicated. And so when somebody is new to the philosophy and they're, they're learning it and they're getting all excited about, yeah, this makes perfect sense. And a lot of people are even say like, like I instinctively knew this all along, but I didn't have the words to put it together. And, and they get all excited and they run off and they tell their friends and they get these weird, irrational, emotional, irrelevant, <laughs> sometimes angry responses. And then, you know, the voluntarist can easily jump to the conclusion. People are like insane or stupid or something and it's hopeless. Sadly, Evidence and logic is going to persuade almost nobody. There is a tiny little percentage of the population that cares enough about thinking that those things by themselves might do some good. But for most people, if you don't understand the weird stuff going inside, going on inside people's heads, trying to tell them something that conflicts with their fundamental view of the world isn't just a matter of like giving them some data, giving them some ideas. Like there's right. a million ways in which, like if you're telling somebody how to change the oil in their car, okay, it's a step-by-step -step thing. They don't have some emotional obstacle to being able to even think about the possibility. But when you're talking about something that's beyond philosophical, it really gets to the heart of how they view humanity and society and morality when you're trying to explain something that conflicts with what they believe a million things in their heads go off that have nothing to do with like rational processing of information and if we don't learn that we can completely understand and be really good at describing the philosophy and the principles and most of the time get nowhere um which is really obnoxious and unfair like i i I wish we were in a world where you could just explain things to people and have them listen and think and process it and understand. Sadly, that's not how it usually goes. And so I've had to accidentally learn a whole bunch about um, psychology and propaganda, propaganda and indoctrination and all the things that get in the way of people actually being anything close to objective and reasonable and sadly, if we want to have the rest of the world understand these ideas, we have to sort of learn all this side stuff that has nothing to do with philosophy 
just to get them to hear the philosophy. Right. I think that's one of the things that's really interested me about it personally, because like you and, and the free thought project both were like two of the main things that were instrumental in me shifting from libertarianism to anarchism and, and eventually sort of me finding my way to even working with the free thought project. So I guess, thank you for that being partially <laughs> responsible for that. Um, but so that's one of the things about this series that interests me because I've always been like, in addition to being a history nerd and, and all that sort of stuff, like uh, psychology is something that's always interested me because I think even early on when I was involved in the anti-war movement, I realized just the mental state of a lot of people just went beyond rational critical thinking and just sort of went into this primal, I guess you could say the word for it is, you know, that the, the, the section of the brain that sort of shuts off rational thinking, cuts off the prefrontal cortex and just goes right to the emotional part of the brain that has no logic whatsoever. So I think that's one of probably the most important things that I've been trying to say for a lot of years. So I'm really glad that that's what you're doing with this, because you know, as Jason said, you're so instrumental already in helping people understand the philosophy. Now we can help get into the meat and potatoes of trying to get it through to people who just have that emotional reaction. Um, so have, have, what would have been some of the other uh, reactions you've gotten from other anarchists that, that you've talked to this about? And have they said, oh, well, you don't need to worry about psychology or have they been more so on board with the fact that, yeah, we should probably try to figure out how to get it through to people's uh, deeper subconscious? Well, I've seen a lot of people say that, well, I've tried everything and it's hopeless and everyone's too stupid and, <laughs> and I have to try to gently or not gently explain to them, first of all, no, you didn't try everything. You tried every version of rational explanation you could think of, but that doesn't do anything to human psychology. And, and part of what I learned, you know, is, you know, a lot of it is from talking to, I don't know how many hundreds of statists I've talked to in the last 27 years, but part of it is also looking at myself back then, because I used to be, you know, a sort of conservative leaning statist, you know, over a quarter of a century ago, it seems like a different lifetime, but I remember it enough to think, what would I, if somebody had like criticized the military to me, now I know dang well that, that I would have like emotionally gotten defensive. Like, well, I, and I think all statists do this. I am a good guy. I want good things. I have, I have the right beliefs. So anybody disagreeing with me has bad beliefs. Like it isn't that I might be wrong about something. It isn't that there can be two conflicting opinions from people who both intend well. It has to be, well, you're an outside foreign enemy threat to my way of thinking. So you're someone to be defeated, which doesn't really require me to like listen to you or anything. And when voluntarists don't get that, that's sort of the default when it comes to issues that really matter, that people are going to be defensive, then they go in and they explain what they believe and, and get a, most of the time, get a bogus response. And then, yeah, I, I still see them all over the place saying, oh, it's, a, it's utterly hopeless. Like anybody who doesn't get it yet is never going to. People are way too stupid. But, you know, I, I see that everywhere. And, and then I see the people who like have done Candles in the Dark. That's the first uh, seminar we did. That was like a three day long thing. It now exists online. That focuses almost entirely on one on one discussions with statists and how to 
approach it completely differently by understanding their psychology. There's a lot of overlap between um, Candles in the Dark and making anarchy mainstream, but Candles in the Dark was just about one-on-one -on -one discussions. Um, and the people who took the time to learn it and try it were like, holy smokes, suddenly I, I can take some random person I've never met who's a total statist and not only is there not confrontation, but we're both having fun and they're hearing what I'm saying and they're enjoying the conversation, which that's not the norm. If you go up to somebody and say, hey, hey your fundamental view of reality is totally screwed up. Let me tell you why. That doesn't usually result in either side having fun. But when people learn enough about the psychology to approach it a completely different way, lots of people have come back to me and, and reported that, yeah, it takes some time and effort to train yourself to not go into, you know, confrontational debate mode or evangelical mode, as we call it. But once you train yourself, the conversations suddenly get like friendly and fun to the point. And, and this is the thing in Candles in the Dark, we'd have people come in. Um, we we basically have a live demonstration of, okay, we just did this for a couple of days. Now you're going to demonstrate what you know by we're going to bring in complete strangers and have people try out what they've just been learning for two days and never confrontational. It's always friendly. The other person is always smiling or laughing like the, the status to come in, comes in and has no idea what this is even about. But a lot of the time, we would basically bribe them and say, if you, we ask you questions for 15 minutes, just about what you believe and you get 50 bucks. We just blatantly bribe people <laughs> to bring them in to have an example to show. In a lot of cases, we were like, all right, that's all you had to do. Here's your money. The statist will go, no, I want to keep going. This is fun. <laughs> and I have to point out to voluntarists, how many times is that the response that you get trying to talk to a complete stranger who's a status that they want it to keep going instead of they're like jumping out the window to get away from you. And that's all about learning the psychology. So I totally sympathize with the people who have used evidence and logic and been frustrated over and over and over again and say, oh, it's hopeless. Everybody's too stupid. But it isn't. Unfortunately, we have to do something that should be unnecessary and irrelevant, but it's what you have to do if you want to actually get someone to reconsider their fundamental view of reality and this stuff actually does it. And it only took me 27 years of doing it the wrong way to, <laughs> to, to learn this much of what actually can get through to people. Yeah. It's absolutely about the approach, right. And, and how we uh, offer people this, this type of information. And we have to remember too, like people are tribal creatures ultimately, right? Like they're, especially these days, very much entrenched in their political identities. And there's subconscious factors that play and, and are involved that, you know, want us to be defensive of our in-group preferences. So some of this is just, yeah, biological. Some of it is instinctual. And as you were saying, you know, there's a lot of emotion. I, I feel like uh, it's a very small percentage of us that actually are logically based rational thinkers, right? Like critical thinkers. And if, if you think about it, like most people have been programmed with fear. So of course they're going to respond to emotion primarily. So yeah. it's all yeah. about how we package the information, how we present it. And as I've often said, you know, over the years, like that's one thing that I feel like we've taken a little pride in at the free thought project. We've been pretty good about how we package our information. But as I've said, like you could write the best article that's ever existed. It's powerful. It's, it's truthful. 
is informative, but if you're not packaging it correctly, no one's going to see it. So you have to be mindful of how other people are going to perceive the information. And uh, yeah, so all these things are absolutely important. I'm glad we're talking about this. And as I alluded to in the intro of your podcast, like you're a master orator, you're highly gifted conveyor of conceptual ideas, and you know how to present information in layman's terms for the average normie. So you've written several books, you've done several full-length documentaries, short-form documentaries. I know you mentioned uh, Candles in the Dark. I think maybe one of your more popular is The Most Dangerous Superstition, uh, the tiny dot, which is you know one of my favorites, the Jones plantations, but like out of all the content that you've created over the years, like what do you believe was the most impactful, moving some of these ideas of the illusion of authority forward, and what stands out in your mind as being the project that you're the most proud of? Well, my book, The Most Dangerous Superstition, is I think what what the largest number of people have told me that that change their their view of reality like fundamentally um but it's worth pointing out that almost everything i do is for people who are ready for the conversation and the the seminar making anarchy mainstream gets into this that there's two categories of people there are people ready and and able to have the conversation about these ideas and that's a fairly tiny group and then there's the rest of the world <laughs> And yeah. so my book and my videos and most of what I've done that, you know, it's unilateral communication. In other words, I make a video, I write a book and I throw it out of the world. It's not a discussion. Like it's not, it, it's not about what somebody else thinks. It's me saying what I think <clears throat> and making anarchy mainstream gets into how the thing that more often will engage the people who aren't yet like they haven't thought about these things before and they're not necessarily ready to think about them. If they don't feel engaged, they just shut off. And it's like, well, why? I don't care. Like, I'm not going to read that book. I'm not going to watch that video. Why would I care? Obviously it doesn't match what I already think and what I already think is right. So whatever. And sadly we need the normies. There, there's literally a section of the seminar called we need the normies because if you have a world full of indoctrinated people, who believe in statism and, you know, this weird little fringe of wackos like us who wants people to be free. It doesn't end well. Like we're not free and they're not free. Like we might be able to find somewhere to hide in the woods for a little bit and not get bothered, but that's not being free. That's living in an unfree world. And so people can look back century after century and see all these great works describing individual freedom from, you know, Voltaire and Albert J. Nock and, and Bastiat and, you know, whoever you want to refer to. And yet here we are, like, why didn't that fix anything? And the answer is they were really good at describing the philosophy and they sucked at getting through to normal people because they were so used to thinking in concepts and principles and describing things they wrote for other thinkers. And the sad practical reality is if we don't know how to translate these ideas into normie speak, and if we don't know a way to get normal quote unquote people to care about this and think about this, then we just keep going around in circles. We'll keep having a fringe of weirdos. Now, I think that's actually already happening all over the place. But the so when it comes to like you asked about which things I think have had the most impact, 
when it comes to people who were able to think about things already, like my book, The Most Dangerous Superstition was a huge one, but there's actually, it's weird because different things hit different people differently. So I, there's a long list of videos I've done that at one time or another, one or two or 20 people have told me, yeah, the tiny dot changed my life. And I was like, that stupid little thing, it's just an animated little nothing. They're like, yeah, but it started me thinking. So you, you never can tell what's going to sort of hit with somebody and make them start thinking about it. Um, but to me, the bigger challenge and the more important thing is what are the things that get the people who aren't already thinking about things to actually pay attention and change their minds. And that's what Candles in the Dark and, and Making Anarchy Mainstream is actually for, is how do we get the rest of the world who doesn't go out of their way to think about things to actually start to question this? And it's a completely different approach because, you know, if somebody is is curious and into thinking about things, you know, there's a huge list of resources you can throw at them and they're going to dive in and you can have discussions and stuff. But if someone's just living their life and, you, you know, paying their taxes and obeying the law like a good person and they've never thought about it and they don't have any incentive to pay any attention to that stuff, we need a completely different approach to help them to escape the authoritarian garbage that they were taught so that they end up being our allies. And so it's a it's like two different species. <laughs> there's, there's the species that likes to talk about stuff and you can just have philosophical discussions. And then there's the species that really doesn't. And unfortunately, I think that's most people. But it's still possible to get through to them. But the method is complete and the approach is completely different. It's so true, man. There's so so many varying degrees to attempting to convey one's point. I remember uh, Josie Wales was giving a speech at the Free Your Mind conference like, I don't know, shit, eight years ago or something like that. And mm -hmm. um, during her speech, some guy asked a question and she was in because her speech was pretty powerful. And the guy wanted to know how he could, you know, help tell people about her point. He wanted and he brought up that he wanted to tie people down and you know and nail this into their heads you know she called him out for it because obviously that doesn't work you know so there's there's these varying degrees and i've long thought that if you present a rational argument without being an asshole you know these ideas will eventually sink into people and i mean i guess i thought that because that's kind of how i broke free from my you know like status paradigm that i was deeply rooted in for very many years yeah but I don't think that that's the norm. I think people like us having this conversation right here, I'm not saying we're special or anything. I, I think that maybe we're, maybe we're like mutants or autistic or some <laughs> shit, you know, like I don't think that's the norm. Like I, I recently started reading about the Salem witch trials and I learned that like the people that killed thousands of like innocent women were the best and brightest and like the most well-read people in society. Yeah. They used like logic and reason and studies to make their points and they hung fuck thousands of women. Yeah. Right. And we can see a lot of this in today's um, climate and, and, and uh, you know, academia is we see some of the smartest and well-educated people out there pushing utterly ridiculous woke bullshit points that, that they fullheartedly believe many of these people. You know, yeah. and so seeing these two parallels from that, like from, you know, for hundreds of years and, and now it started independently leading me to like this same premise that you have with candles in the dark. And and I, you know, I haven't given it much thought about how to apply any of that psychology. But my question is, I guess, is like, was there this 
seeing all these smart people doing all these bad things is what sent me on this like new process to try to realize what can change somebody's mind. And that's, was there like a eureka moment for you that kind of like woke you up to this psychological tendency that just presenting rational, peaceful ideas don't work? Well, it was, it was sort of like thousands of tiny little yeah. <laughs> examples of talking to statists and like eventually you notice patterns like, and, and we explain some of this in candles in the dark. Like when somebody asks about my roads, but how will the roads work? I always assumed, Oh, they want to know how the roads will work. And it took me a zillion times to figure out their question literally has nothing to do with the roads. This is their brain uncomfortable looking at principles making up an excuse to change the discussion to something else. And so like one of the things to talk about in making anarchy mainstream is don't talk about the practicalities because that's literally giving their brain an excuse to not look at the principles. It's like, well, then explain to me how every aspect of life will work perfectly without a ruling class or I'm not going to listen to it. And it took me forever to understand First of all, they're not doing that on purpose. They're not like trying to be manipulative. This is their subconscious subconscious flying off on a tangent to get away from what's uncomfortable because of the cognitive dissonance. And in Candles in the Dark, we teach your goal is to get them to their cognitive dissonance and sort of handhold them as they have to sort out their internal contradictions. But their brain isn't going to like that. You know, if, if somebody, you know, even just in random discussion, if somebody brings up a topic you know nothing about, you're more comfortable, you know, wandering it off onto something you actually know about. Well, that's everybody. Everybody does that. And if you get, if you ask them things that lead them to a place where they're uncomfortable with their beliefs and they don't know how to answer and they're not even sure what they believe, their brain is going to run off on, you know, whatever escape they can find. One of them is, well, how will the roads work and how will this work and how will this, all the practicalities? Uh, another one is predictions. Well, this will never happen. Everyone's going to believe this. All the ways in which their brains can get out of having to think about, well, what do I actually believe and condone? Because that's the uncomfortable part. So there were bits and pieces along the whole way that I sort of learned the hard way why their brain was doing these weird things that look irrational and irrelevant. And, but there are obvious patterns. Like you talk to a zillion statists and a bunch of them do the exact same tangent from the same question. It's like, why would they all answer a similar thing that a has nothing to do with what I just asked and B is completely irrational. Like, why would they all do something that similar? And then I had, I sort of made myself have to learn about the psychology of why is that happening? Because it's really frustrating to try to like lay out, you know, two plus two equals four. And they say, but casseroles don't have wombats in them. And just like, <laughs> why, how did, what, why did your brain go there? And to figure out why their brain goes there and how to stop their brain from going there and actually keep it on point was like a way bigger learning curve than actually understanding the philosophy, which is actually pretty simple. <laughs> you get right down to it. Like don't attack people. It's kind of that. There's a little more to it than that, but mainly it's don't attack people. Um, so it was little tiny steps along the way of learning what's going on in the other person's head. And sadly, I think most anarchists and voluntarists are pretty bad at that because, and I, uh, not because they're bad people, but because they get excited about a really important set of ideas 
And when they're, they're talking about it, the other person is kind of irrelevant. They're just hurling ideas at whoever happens to be standing in front of them. They're not trying to understand what the other person believes and, and knows. And I don't mean because everybody's belief is equally valid. No, they're not. But if you don't understand how the other person's brain is processing stuff and imagining stuff, you're going to be way worse at getting through to them. If you just sort of throw out the ideas as you think them and as you imagine them and as you describe them, and they really have nothing to do with the discussion because it's not a discussion, it's a monologue. They have almost no psychological incentive to give a crap what you have to say. And lots of reasons to want to run away because if they pay attention enough to understand a little bit of it, they're going to be uncomfortable. And then they want to escape. Whereas both Candles in the Dark and Making Anarchy Mainstream are about bringing out of them what they already believe. It's not about bludging them over the head with what you believe. And the results are just, you know, night and day. Just when it comes to normal people who don't think about stuff on a regular basis, it's just amazing how different the conversations are um, compared to, I'm going to go preach at this guy until he believes what I believe. It's like, well, good luck. I mean, you can have good intentions, but that doesn't stink and work. You see it so often too, like all these brilliant minds just debating online. It's and, and just, or just presenting their point, you know, it's uh, <laughs> like brilliant people just presenting their points and, and arguing those points. It's, it's so true. Like the way that you presented that, like everybody's just always saying their points. They're just, man, if I can just, to tell them about copyright law, you know, then it's going to, Stephen Kinsella's come to mind and, and, you know, then, then I'll convince <laughs> them, but I, there it's very few people are getting convinced. And, and the way that you're going about this is, is brilliant. I just got to commend you on that. Well, thank you. And the, the, so both candles in the dark and making anarchy mainstream focus heavily on the fact that most of what we should be doing is asking questions, not just, random questions like we have a point that we're trying to get to but instead of us trying to hit them over the head with it we ask them what they believe to get them to the point where they're having to look at their own beliefs and go uh like even when i do and most of what i do in public isn't isn't the gentle thing i'm talking about it's knock down drag out <laughs> debates because in public there's like public pressure on people and i'm not even trying to do candles in the dark i'm just doing a debate but even there, I'll often just do questions and say, okay, well, you said this to get them to clarify what they're saying. And most of it is that because if somebody says, well, I believe, you know, if I were to talk to the me of 28 years ago and, and ask a few questions like that one would be pro-military because defend us against scary people around the world and pro-police to defend us against scary people here if I walk through the process and I, I sort of did this at the time, which is why I accidentally turned into an anarchist. If I walk through the process, well, do you think it's okay to force your neighbors to pay for whatever form of protection you think is ideal? And I would hem and haw and flounder around and uh, no. <laughs> and to, to put everything in the terms of the moral beliefs of the person you're talking about, not to condemn them, but to ask them questions to have them clarify. And the reason this works on this topic, I mean, a lot of these methods will work on a lot of different topics, but the reason this all the way works on this topic is it's impossible to believe in government and not have internal contradictions. 
And that means at no point do you even need to tell them your opinions if you know how to use questions to bring them to the point that they crash into their own contradictions. And you didn't have to like criticize them or go, ha you're an idiot. Like it was just a matter of answering, asking questions until they get to the point where they scratch their heads and go, um, well, uh, I don't know. And then they have to process it. And, and that's, that's one of the biggest things that uh, voluntarists and just humans in general are kind of bad at is understanding that the other person needs time and space to process stuff to change their beliefs. You don't get to change their beliefs for them. You can bring them up to a point where they see there's a problem and they see there's a contradiction and they're not sure what they believe. And it literally has nothing to do with what you believe. It's them trying to sort out their own stuff and then let them go through the uncomfortable process and, and be there and be on their side as they're trying to sort that out instead of viewing them as an enemy combatant to be defeated in verbal combat. It's like, okay, yeah, I know that's fun. I've done lots of it myself. And if you want the person to actually hear you, that's not really the approach to use. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought this up, Larkin. There's so much truth to this. And, you know, I'm certainly guilty of it myself. I I've certainly have the monologues memorized. You know, I know how to preach. And I, I'm slowly but surely becoming more aware of it as well, because it is about how we engage uh, that person we're having a conversation with. And I, I think pretty much everything that you were just saying basically boils down to the method of Socratic questioning, right? And uh, because I'm always and forever a philosophy nerd, this is actually something I wanted to talk about because there's been, uh, and we've even covered uh, when this happened, uh, uh, there was a journalist named Jan Hellfield who used this type of Socratic questioning to question a bunch of lawmakers. And the question that he would use seems to strike at the root of the legitimacy of statism. And it, it certainly defanged, I guess you could say, several adamant and popular status politicians like Bernie Sanders. So this Jan Helfeld guy basically got Bernie Sanders in a room. It was certainly highly entertaining to, to watch Bernie squirm and do mental gymnastics to try to give an answer. But the question that he would use is, is there any means by which any number of individuals could delegate to someone else the moral right to do something which none of the individuals have the moral right to do themselves? And I know that this is a topic that you're uh, well-versed in and you have certainly an answer for. And just for the sake of maybe getting into a little philosophy instead of you know talking about how we could be more effective at communicating it, like, do you mind maybe answering that question and clearing the air if, just in case someone in our audience might still be a, attached to the concept of political authority? Yeah, so the answer is no, we can't, we can't delegate rights we don't have. Uh, that's also an example of how often we as voluntarists may have to translate things into terms and concepts that other people are used to thinking about because the concept of delegating rights is already outside of most people's like, what are you talking about? They may be able to like focus and go, oh, okay, like I'm giving a right. Something. So that's why I often, I, I dumb things down. Uh, I dumb things down to the point that a lot of people like think I must be stupid I'm like, well, I could say it in the sophisticated way that most people wouldn't understand, but what would be the point of that? So, yeah, so I'll demonstrate now by dumbing it down um, for anyone who hasn't heard the concept of delegating rights is just basically, is it okay 
for you to ask somebody else to do something for you that you know would be wrong if you did it yourself. And most people understand like, well, I shouldn't rob this liquor store, but if I ask Fred to go rob it for me, um, is that okay? And most people instinctively and immediately say, no, that's not okay. No, then I'm just, I'm a bad guy and a coward who wouldn't even do it myself. And, and if you walk down the train of thought, well, what if you and a couple of your friends, you all say, we really shouldn't rob this liquor store. That's bad. But if three of us ask Fred to go rob the liquor store for us, does that make it okay? And putting it down on this level seems sort of silly, but it makes it easy for normal people to go, no, that's still silly. That's still ridiculous. That's still bad. You, you can't make something good just by asking somebody else to do a bad thing for you. That doesn't make it good. And walking down that, that train of thought, it's like, well, what if instead of just asking Fred to go rob the liquor store, you create a political position called the Local Wealth Redistribution Agency and you vote to have Fred in it and you have an official title and he wears a suit and he, maybe he has a staff and some employees and some of them have guns and they go rob the liquor store. Does that make it okay? And if you walk down the line, at some, person the, at some point the person starts to notice, oh, this is heading in the direction of what if I'm voting for government to do it for me? Does that make it okay? And the answer is no, it doesn't make it okay at all. Like voting to have a representative pass a bill to do this, to enforce a tax on the guy who runs the liquor store, morally is identical to if you had just gone in with a gun and demanded some money from him. But all the pseudo-religious rituals in between and all the propaganda and rhetoric we've heard about government and democratic this and constitutional republics and yada, 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 cover over the reality of it to the point that people don't see the literal reality of what they are personally voting for and condoning and walking them through the process of, okay, are you okay? Do you feel okay and moral and justified in trying to get somebody else to take money from that guy over there without his consent to pay for something you want. Is that okay? And when they see the literal reality, most people get uncomfortable because they, they like the euphemisms. They like the, 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 because they like thinking, well, if you vote, that's the system we have. And then if, you know, people get free stuff, you know, free stuff from where, well, I mean, we have to have taxes because like all the things that make it vague and confusing if you can wipe that away by asking questions that make it specific like about delegating rights whether you use the term delegating rights or not most people will will get uncomfortable with their own political beliefs when you break it down to personal literal and specific answers like tell me what you actually you the voter actually want to have happen to anybody who doesn't go along with this law you voted for or doesn't fund this program you voted for? What do you want to have happen to that person because they had a different idea, because they didn't want to fund the local school or whatever? Like, what do you want to have happen to them? Breaking it down to reality is 90% of the, <laughs> the, the challenge because when people see the literal reality, sometimes they'll still make excuses for it. And we talk about what, what to do about that. 
but the reason they speak in the same euphemisms that politicians do, well, I believe in free healthcare for all. Okay, well, that sounds nice. I would believe in that too. If we could magically press a button and now for some reason, never mind the laws of economics, magically everybody has free healthcare. Okay, I'm cool with that. But in reality, how does that happen? Like, some are the doctors all doing this for free? And is somebody building hospitals for Well, no, they get paid. Okay, they get paid by who? And then you, you walk through the line of questioning till you're actually describing the literal reality of what's going on. And most people already have the right answers. They just haven't looked at it specifically and literally and honestly before. And again, even if they double down and go, well, we have to do that anyway. There, there's, you know, there's a different way we approach that. But it's still just about finding the part of them that that believes in peaceful coexistence. Because unless somebody's all the way a psychopath, they, which some people are, but if for almost everybody else, part of them wants peaceful coexistence. They don't want to be the aggressor and they don't want to think that they're asking somebody else to be an aggressor. Thus, all the propaganda and rhetoric and euphemisms used to hide the fact that government is always an aggressor. And every every law, every agenda, every regulation, every legislative plan is the use of violence against people. And getting people to see that reality just by asking them questions about what they condone is the, the best way I've ever seen to get them to start to reconsider. And again, this, this was true of myself when I started looking into what am I actually condoning? Am I okay with taxing my neighbors? Well, you should be forced to fund for, you know, fund whatever I think protection should be because I know better than you. I was like, wait a minute. Now I sound exactly like them when they tell me I should be forced to fund what they want. Maybe neither of us should be forced to fund what the other one wants. And so getting people to the point where they can process it themselves instead of telling them the conclusion they should have works a thousand times better. And it's also way more respectful because you're actually talking to a human being who means well. He's trying to support the right things. He's doing what he thinks is right. He's not trying to be evil. And if you talk to somebody as if you're trying to be evil, you're an idiot and you're evil, and I'm going to tell you why, they're not going to care what you have to say and you're not going to make any difference. But if you can find the good intentions and the part of them that's basically already a voluntarist and wants peaceful coexistence and, and all that, and help that out from under the garbage they were taught. Most people, it's not that difficult to get them there if you don't make it into a confrontation by basically telling them you're stupid and evil and here's why. Wow. Yeah, so many great points there. And I feel like you uh, you really gave a well-rounded answer and explained that perfectly. So thank you for that, Larkin. Switching gears here, we have a lot to talk about, but here's a fun fact for our audience, and maybe you, Larkin, if you, you might have even forgot, but for a brief period of time, you actually wrote for us for the Free Thought Project uh, back in the, the Josie, the outlaw days. Mm -hmm. And uh, back in 2015, you wrote several articles for us. The majority of them were related to ideas regarding police accountability. And one was a bit more controversial. Uh, I remember it creating a lot of waves and, and discussion mm -hmm. on our platform, you know, before uh, Lord Zuckerberg unpublished our pages, of course. Right. And the article that you wrote for us was entitled, When Should You Fight Back Against Police? Now, I know you also had a similar video that you made for your YouTube channel 
with a bit more of a flammatory <laughs> title uh, uh, called When Should You Shoot a Cop that you made with the Cop Block guys. And if I remember correctly, this title actually um, made the news and, and created quite an uproar. So <laughs> congrats on that. <laughs> Somehow, miraculously, the video is still up. It hasn't been taken down by YouTube. Yep. I'm a little amazed. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I don't even know how that's possible, but many regarded it as extreme, you know, just simply because of the title. But in my opinion, it's an important question that needs to be answered. And even if it causes, you know, the normie minds to explode, because it's it's part of a discourse that's been lacking in society. Because as you probably know better than anyone else, there's this godlike mentality surrounding the state. So even posing a question of that nature can offend some people including, you know, our bootlicking friends on the right. But ultimately, it's not a question considering when it's correct to aggress on police employees. It's actually the opposite. It's a question asking when is the appropriate time to defend yourself from an overly aggressive rights violating goon who happens to be wearing a costume. So right. do, you, do you mind unpacking this a bit? Like, what are the prerequisites to morally defend yourself from police? Yeah, well, first I would say that, that that video is actually an example of what I was talking about because the title was obviously blatantly clickbait <laughs> to make people sure. go, what? What did you just say? And Glenn Beck had a tantrum about it and obviously didn't read the article or watch the video. Um, oh, somebody made a printed out version on one sheet of paper and handed them out all over the place at, at some big event and that made the news and stuff. Um, so... Obviously, the title was supposed to get people in, but then with the, the article and the video, um, which was just, I think it was word for word, the same as the article, um, what it ends up doing is saying, like, is there any point at which you think forcibly defending against aggression committed by agents of the state is justified? Or would you literally let agents of the state do absolutely anything to anybody? Would you sit there and watch them, like, beat someone to death in front of you who hadn't done anything. And, but it left it in the form of a question, right? Like, you know, I obviously drop hints of where I think I would draw the line, but it's, it's an example of what I was just talking about to ask the other person, you know, between right now where I assume the person isn't in the process of shooting at cops. And, if you're all the way in a fascist state where they're locking up people just for, you know, for things that obviously are unjustified, at what point do you decide this isn't okay? And it's enough, not okay, that I'm actually going to forcibly resist. I'm not just going to wait around and vote in a few years. This is not okay. And so my line is basically the, and there, again, there's a bunch of, of practical considerations. There's a bunch of stupid kind of minor stuff that I put up with and I don't forcibly resist. If somebody pulls me over for not having a sticker on my car, we're not going to have a shootout about it. Um, even though I think I'd have every right to defend myself because you're the aggressor. You don't get to like threaten me with violence and cage me because I didn't have the right sticker on my car. That's not endangering anybody. That's not anything. You're the aggressor. But aside from the practical question of, well, this isn't worth it. I don't want to have a shootout over my car registration sticker. That would be stupid. But there are lines where I would totally, like if, if government came to take my child or something, um, yeah, saying I'm not, <laughs> that's not happening quietly. 
Sure. And, or came to take me for no particular reason, or, you know, there's a number of places I draw the line, but the video in the article is basically asking the viewer, where would you draw the line? And I think it was a demonstration of the power of that approach that under the video, there were a number of comments of people admitting, well, the title totally freaked me out and I was all emotional and angry. And then I watched it and yeah, you kind of have a point. And hmm, yeah, at what point do we actually forcibly resist? Because even though it was, you know, it's an example of unilateral communication because it's just a video thrown out there. But even that was asking them to think, where do you draw the line? Would you put up with absolutely any mistreatment at the hands of the state? Or at some point, would you say, no, I'm not going along with this. And if you break out the guns to try to make me go along with it, I'm going to break out the guns to make it so I don't have to go along with it. And to ask people, when would you do that? And leave, leave the question open. Like, if you want to, you can decide, nope, I would let them do anything to anybody. I would sit there and watch them completely abuse or torture and murder an innocent person right in front of me rather than take up arms. Okay, if that's your position, that can be your position. I think it's insane and immoral, but if that's your answer to the question, that can be your answer. But almost nobody is going to give that as their answer. They, they can all think of examples. Well, if it got this bad, then I would resist. Okay, well, as soon as you say, if it got this bad, I, I would resist, you can't get emotional about the title anymore because the answer is not the answer to the question, when should you shoot a cop? You don't even think the answer is never. You might think it's, well, things have to get pretty bad. Okay. How bad? Exactly where, where do you draw the line? And so the, the process of inviting people to think about what they actually believe and what they would do is way more effective than me focusing on here's where I would draw the line. And some people would draw it differently and who cares? Like I'm not going to be the emperor of anarchy anyway. <laughs> so I'm not going to draw the line for everybody else. I think anytime there is aggression, badges are completely irrelevant and the victim of the aggression has the right to defend himself. Sometimes it isn't worth it on a practical basis like if a carjacker has a gun in your face and you're unarmed, you might want to give him your car, not because you have an obligation to give him your car, but because you might die if you don't. Same thing in dealing with aggressors with badges, but the fundamental principle is the aggressor is in the wrong and the one who defends himself against the aggressor is in the right. Doesn't mean it's going to end well for the person who's in the right. And so that's a consideration. But just the process of having people start to think about that even even though it, it amazes me that how many people have never thought about that sure. and they'll sit there and admit, well, I've never thought about like, how bad does it have to get before you'd actually say no and maybe actually resist. And just the process of getting them to decide where they would draw the line is way more powerful than me just bludgeoning them over the head with, well, here's what I think. Right. I think that, that during the, the this whole past three years of like insane COVID nineteen eighty four, I think has really done. Uh, if we can draw any sort of silver lining from it, has actually done a job of helping people sort of get to that. Not only looking at the absurdity of the state, but also the absurdity of goons in costumes as the enforcers of the state. And, you know, even the ones that the people that I knew personally that before that would never even think, oh, you know, to question a cop, oh, they're here to protect us. 
looking at people getting beat down and put in the hospital over not wearing a piece of cloth over their face that doesn't work or going out to walk their dog when the government says you can't leave your house, then start to think, well, hold on, why do, you know, the obviously these guys aren't actually protecting us, so what are they actually doing? And a lot of people that know me know that, I, that I'm, I've talked about this for a long time because uh, an example that I use to people because I like music and a lot of people like music, I'm a fan of Tupac Shakur, so I always bring up that famous story where Tupac happened to see these two dudes uh, beating the piss out of this innocent guy, and they hopped out and he shot them, and they ended up being cops, and he got off for it because it was found he did the right thing by stopping these aggressors from just, you know, beating the crap out of this guy for no reason. And that sort mm -hmm. of brings that, that idea into these people's heads. And so now in this, you know, this post COVID era and people are starting to analyze these things and they're starting to look back at some of these infamous incidents, say the Waco or Randy Weaver, or even, you know, incidents such as the Killdozer or Chris Dorner. And they're actually starting to sort of bump up against their cognitive dissonance and ask themselves these questions. And so I, I think, if there's any silver lining, I don't know if I even have a question, really, just a sort of a point, I guess, to make to follow up your point uh, before I let Matt take it. It was uh, just sort of thankfully, I guess, to COVID that we're seeing because of the circumstances that were created due to that in absurd insanity. People are starting to ask these questions more and more, whereas a lot of the even some of my friends on the right, as I said, that would have never questioned a cop. Now they're like. Well, hold on. What are, the, what are these yeah. people actually serving our society for? Yeah, if I can very briefly dive in here. Yeah, the the whole time that that spectacle was going on, because I look at things in the, the overall, the big game and the propaganda war, I was thinking, what are you idiots in government doing? You're literally training your most loyal subjects in how to say no to you. <laughs> like you're right. you're punishing the people who were most loyal to you and had the most blind faith in you. And it worked like a huge number of normal law abiding taxpayers got to the point where like, we're not going along with this. We're not gonna shut down our business. We're not gonna require people to do that. We're not gonna do even their own enforcers. Like here in, in Arizona, at least two of the sheriffs came out and said, yeah, we're not doing shutdowns. The governor said, we're doing shutdown. The sheriff said, no, we're not. <laughs> and when your own enforcers are saying, no, this is stupid, you're teaching your subjects how to disobey you, which I'm thrilled that they were dumb enough to do that. But yeah, that was just amazing to me that they pushed it so idiotically. And, you know, they destroyed a lot of people's lives, so it was horrible. But yeah, it is a bit of a silver lining that even a bunch of normal people learned how to say no. It's so true, man. I mean, even the the state sees this premise, right? We've seen them in Indiana um, and Florida pass these bills that um, basically allow citizens or protect citizens who shoot police officers, right? They, if, they, if it's under yeah. unjust uh, situations. And there's all kinds of examples where people actually do defend themselves against police and end up not getting those uh, protections afforded. You know, like Marvin Guy, for instance, is right. still rotting in jail for for defending himself against armed invaders who were trying to rob him in the middle of the night. But um, oh, yeah. what do you think that is? You think that that's like Liberty tearing down the state when they, when the state concedes these laws and, and grants people protections when they shoot back at the state, you think that's like Liberty tearing down the, the state or you think that's a concession by the state is acknowledging that they fuck up sometimes. I think, and this is, people can think this is conspiratorial. 
I literally think the only purpose of government courts is to rein in government power enough that there isn't a revolution. And I don't mean they're doing it because it's righteous. I mean, it's literally people on the bench saying, we're either going to let you do this and then they're going to kill you, Mr. Politician, or we're going to kind of back off and pretend we give a crap about their rights because we're at the point now that they're not at all pleased with what's going on. So I think they're... There are concessions here and there literally to avoid like assassinations and revolution and a, a hysterical example. I, I assume I'll never know what happened behind the scenes. Um, I'll give the short version. There was the, the woman who ran a salon down in Texas and they did, we're doing shutdowns. And she's like, I'm not shutting down. My employees rely on these jobs to feed their families. I'm not shutting down all over the news. And they're like, you have to shut down. They arrested her, which was on the news. She's before the court and the judge said, if you'll just admit that what you did was wrong, I'll let you go. <laughs> and she's like, it wasn't wrong. I was right. Well, then 90 days in jail. I believe it was literally the next day the governor of Texas came out and said, nobody can be imprisoned for ignoring this command. The, the ones he signed, the, the, the decrees that he signed and the lieutenant general said, I, I'm paying all her fines. What went on behind closed doors? I guarantee it was something like, yeah, we've been doing a poll and they're going to kill us. <laughs> You're making that woman a martyr. They all love her. They all hate you. They're going to freaking kill you if you don't back off. And they're Okay, quick, run out there. Pretend we give a crap about rights. Obviously, we don't. These were our decrees and mandates. Like, we're the ones who did it. And suddenly, the next day, we're like, oh, that was so horrible. What happened to her? Like, you're the one who made it happen to her. They didn't suddenly have a change of heart they suddenly realized that self-preservation requires them to back the hell off. And I think most of what you see in the courts and anything that looks pro-freedom inside the system is basically them realizing, whoops, we may have pushed a little too far. It's time to back off so we don't have something really nasty happen to us because they know they're on the brink of that. That's a great point, man. <laughs> now, we wanted to use this opportunity with the great Larkin Rose to actually make a big announcement of our own. So after a year of working on it, we're actually finally launching our own children's book to teach kids their rights entitled Little Free Thinkers, Know Your Rights. And we're super excited to release this. Matt and myself have invested a lot of love and effort into this project. And the book uses real life examples to teach children about free speech, among other things. The target age group is about eight to 12. And we believe this could give children a foundation of knowledge of liberty, you know, and especially when dealing with police and how to apply their rights. The book is now in the publishing phase and should probably be ready for pre-order in the next week or two. So keep an eye out for that, guys. I did have one last uh, question from, it was an audience question from James Freeman, who uh, I think you might be familiar with Larkin. He's uh, the First yeah, Amendment I auditor, cop watcher, who we've actually done a podcast with check out that podcast guys in our archives, but he wanted to know Larkin, if you actually have a release date right now for the Jones plantation. And um, maybe after you answer that, you could tell our audience how they could find making anarchy mainstream and candles in the dark and anything else that you wanted to plug before we wrap this up. The, the Jones plantation was just a, a series of miracles we pulled off. If the miracles keep getting pulled off on the time schedule, it should actually be out next month as in April. Um, All right. Go public. We had a, a viewing of a sort of rough version of it. The sound wasn't done and a few other things. 
um, at Anarchapulco, which went over very well. <clears throat> but yeah, the, the, with any luck, unless some other complications come up next month, it's supposed to be out and all over the place. So we'll, and I don't know the schedule of, we're going to have screenings in actual theaters and we're going to set up a thing so people can, because these days theaters are so desperate that they're, they're literally advertising, Hey, anybody want to rent our theaters? So <laughs> I think it's pretty easy for people to, we're going to make a little package where people can set up a showing of the Jones plantation in their local theater um, and maybe get a cut of it or something. We have to figure out the details, but yeah, it should be next month that the Jones plantation movie finally comes out. Yeah. I'm definitely throwing some money that way, man. I saw on the, I saw that this morning. I was completely unaware that you were doing that. And after hearing this podcast and your explanation of all this is like, like, man, this may be one of the best viable solutions we have towards inciting some pretty amazing change in this world. I love it, dude. You, you're definitely going to get some money. I think the movie is going to traumatize the hell out of people in a way that they very much <laughs> love it. And uh, what about making anarchy mainstream? Is is that something that's just on your website or how would people be able to that? Because that's a download. The way to, to get that is to email me Larkin at LarkinRose.com. Um, and I can show you the different ways to pay for it. And then I send people the links to just download it. And then they have it forever is it's three video files. It's a, they add up to three and a half hours. Um, but it's broken into three parts. So if they email me Larkin, which is L A R K E N at L A R K E N R O S E.com. Um, I can show them how to, to pay right now. It's, it's 50 bucks. Um, and you download it and have it forever. And I send you the links and all that. Um, and then for those who want the bigger thing, which is candles in the dark, which is more, but you can get that at attendcandles.com. Um, but I would actually start with making anarchy mainstream, which covers more things than just one-on-one -on -one discussions. All right, guys. So Matt just gently reminded me it's littlefreethinkers.com. Littlefreethinkers.com for is the name of the website that we just put up for the book. So I, I need to get that in. But uh, Larkin, I feel like we could probably talk for like another two hours. I, I wanted to talk to you about the whole Russell Brand thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your experiences when you don't pay taxes um, and, and talk about just taxes in general. I also want to talk about some police solutions, but I guess we'll probably have to hold off until next time because we're right, right about now hitting the hour mark. Honestly, Larkin, this is, this is a pleasure talking to you. It's certainly an honor the work that you've done and continue to do to expose the illegitimacy of claimed authority is probably some of the most important work that we can do to empower ourselves, uh, empower the masses and take back control over our thoughts, decisions, and ultimately our lives. So thank you for being the spark that so many need to light the fire of philosophy, of action, to motivate themselves, empower themselves, to take back our power. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.